This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Hello everyone, my name is Ernest Lewis and I'm the podcast editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to a podcast co-produced by The Straits Times and Berita Harian. Our topic is the impact of the 9-11 attacks in the United States back in 2001 and how it has affected harmony in Singapore and Southeast Asia. To help me look at the wide-ranging impact, I have with me three guests here in the cozy Berita Harian podcast studio. First up is my colleague in charge of our Singapore news, the Straits Times Singapore desk editor, Zakir Hussein. Hi, Zakir. Hi, Ernest. And uh, next, we have Berita Harian's assistant to the editor, Nazri Hadi Saparin. Hi, Hadi. Hey, hi, Ernest. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. And finally, we have our special guest, Dr. Muhammad Ali. Vice Chairman and Counselor of the Religious Rehabilitation Group, or the RRG for short. He's also an Assistant Professor at RSIS in NTU. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mohamed. Thank you, Hi, Anas. And pleasure, friends. pleasure. Really an honour to get you on our show, and it's nice to get all three, uh, all four of us actually <laughs> in the same room. So it's late September in uh, 2021 now, and the world recently remembered the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in the US. So maybe I'll start with Dr. Muhammad first and then the rest. Let's say we take the decade from 2001 to 2010, right? What do each of you think were the three biggest impactful points or even lasting permanent changes for Singapore and Singaporeans? Start with you, Dr. Mohamed, yeah, from Thank that first decade, yeah. Thank you, Ernest. Uh, allow me to start with a personal anecdote. I can still uh, remember the time, the, the images of 9-11 are still fresh in my, in my memory. Mm. Uh, that year, September 2001, yeah. I, it was just two months after I came back from my study in, in the Lazar University, yeah, and this 9-11 attacks happened. And uh, I mean, it's no doubt that the 9-11 attacks by Al-Qaeda 20 years ago has uh, dramatically changed the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Although the acts of terrorism and violence uh, was not something new back then, uh, but the attacks by Al-Qaeda has brought a new dimension to this whole thing about uh, political violence. Mm. Just three months after 9-11, Singapore discovered that the activities of the GI network operating yes. in Singapore. Yeah. So if we look at 2001 to 2010, we have witnessed the evolution of the extremist threat beginning from Al-Qaeda and GI in 2001, 2002. And then, uh, for example, in 2001, we have the 9-11 attacks in the US. Mm. Right? 2002, 2001, December, and then 2002, Singapore made the two major arrests yes. of the GI detainees. And on 12th of October that year, uh, the Bali attack happened, which mm. killed 202 civilians. 88 were them, 88 uh, were Australians. And then subsequent years, you found that GI did uh, major attacks uh, in JW uh, Merritt in Jakarta. And then they revisited Bali again in mm. 2005, where they attacked two places in Jimbaran and in Kuta, right? And then after that, after the GI episode, for the very first time, Singapore detected the first case of self-radicalized individual in 2007. Uh, this is a new phenomenon back then. And mm. when this individual 
he was not affiliated to GI nor Al-Qaeda, but he possessed similar ideology, this violent militant ideology. And then after that, 2008-2009, more self-radicalized individuals were detected in Singapore. And then 2010-11, this is at the beginning of the Syrian conflict, mm. uh, because the Syrian conflict actually led to the uh, to the establishment of uh, ISIS in 2014. All this, I, I see there are uh, three biggest impact. One is the social front. Mm. I mean, you see that these attacks by either Al-Qaeda, J.I., even other groups, other like-minded groups like Boko Haram and others, because they uh, were launching attacks in the name of Islam. So we have witnessed this negative perception towards the Muslims. This is what the term we call it today, Islamophobia, right? Yeah. So I think that uh, was quite apparent back then. Uh, and then, you know, Singapore took some steps to kind of deal with this racial and religious harmony. That's very interesting because we, we should hang on to that, what you said. It's political violence. I like the way you describe that. Yeah. Because to many Singaporeans and probably around the world in the US and all that, they started using the phrases religious extremism. Yeah. And that's something we should dive into deeper. I think the differences yeah. there. Yeah. What do I mean by political uh, uh, ideology uh, is that these groups, uh, they, they were launching attacks in the name of religion for political objective. Yes, yes. Yeah. That has been missed by many, many people over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is the new challenge in 2001. Groups like Al-Qaeda, Jai and the like, they espouse what I would further call it violent Islamism. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Then, with regards to the impact, besides social, the second impact... Uh, I would say it is the security impact. I mean, 9-11 and GI has kind of like uh, changed our lifestyle and the way we operate. You see the way we travel yeah. with all the checks, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and the third one in Singapore, what I, I noticed eh, is also the impact uh, uh, on the religious front. Hmm. For example, you know, today we have this system of the a Religious Teachers Recognition Scheme, ARS. If you look at the history of ARS, which was formulated in 2005, it was because of the discovery of GI. Mm. Uh, because the GI episode has kind of pushed us to monitor all these deviant teachings. And this has led to the establishment of two institutions, the RRG and the ARS. Let's let's look at that. You mentioned the RRG. Actually, the RRG was set up in two thousand and three. Yeah. And the IRCC, I think that was the first announcement of it by then Prime Minister Go Chok Tong, right? That's right. In yeah. two thousand and two, and that was known as the Interracial Confidence Circle (IRCC) for short. That was in each local constituency. Sure. Uh, it was later renamed uh, Interracial and Religious Confidence Circle. Yeah. Then the RRG was in 2003. What was the focus of RRG, actually? You are vice chairman there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the Religious Rehabilitation Group, RRG, was formed officially in April 2003 
but uh, before that, in 2001 and 2002, right after the arrest, uh, we were conceptualizing the, 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 this framework of rehabilitation. Hmm. So the formation of the ROG was actually a response to this kind of J.I., the arrests made by the authorities revealed that these individuals, uh, they were planning to attack several targets in Singapore, right? Including the U.S. Embassy, the Australian Embassy, Yishun MRT, and other critical infrastructures in Singapore. And they claimed that these attacks uh, uh, were planned in the name of jihad. Hmm. Uh, so, so they used the word jihad. And the government back then, they knew that they alone would not be able to solve this problem. So what government did was they consulted the religious scholars, hmm. uh, I mean, to kind of assist with this uh, uh, de-radicalization work. Something that's been programmed in their minds need to be deprogrammed. So we have developed the rehabilitation program which focuses on uh, deconstructing this negative ideas that has been imbibed in the minds of the detainees. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I mean, religious knowledge is a problem for many people. Yeah. Uh, having a good foundation in faith is not easy to come by. Yeah. And I think once that is a problem for youth, especially teenagers and all that, that's the temptation because we've gone past the age of the encyclopedia where you depend on your parents or the hard copy books. It was the internet age, basically. It's so easy to propagate very different forms. And then you start consuming one form and you think that is the defining form, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that was good. I mean, it was... Uh, do you see many uh, examples of such bodies being established between the government and the community in other co countries that you've been in? Yeah, to be honest, uh, based on my experience in rehabilitation work for uh, nearly two decades, I have seen that this is something that many countries struggle. Mm. Struggle to develop a comprehensive, a structured rehabilitation program for those who have been affected with extremist ideologies. The reason we in Singapore, we were able to do this is because I think way before 9-11 and mm. way before the GI episode, the Singapore, the Singapore government, the Singapore leaders have established a very close partnership and cooperation with the, with the community. Mm. So the, the, the government community partnership is crucial in such a program. If you look at other countries, the government, uh, some governments might not have this close cooperation and partnership with the community. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I remember uh, countries, some countries in the Middle East, for example, Yemen, Saudi, and Egypt, they form something like the RRG in their respective countries mm -hmm. uh, as early as right after 9-11. Yeah, and I've visited some of these countries uh, in, in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. I've visited the facilities, the ten ten detention facilities and I've also made trips to uh, to Sana'a in Yemen to meet with the Minister for uh, Religious Endowment, who was also the head of the Yemeni Rehabilitation Program. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure how these programs uh, have sustained until today. Mm. Right, yeah. But this is the challenge. For us, the RRG, this, we also look at, you know, how we can also engage the community. 
So mm. the ROG has two pillars. One is rehabilitation. The other is community engagement. This is where I think, apart from rehabilitating those who have been affected with extremist ideology, we also at the same time need to ensure that we will not produce the, the future generation of extremists. This is right. where we need to kind of impart the knowledge to the community, thus preventing them from being future extremists. Hadi, what about you? I mean, what were the three biggest impacts, impact, uh, impactful changes for you in that decade following 9-11? I think Dr. Muhammad has shared quite a bit. So maybe mm. not, I'll share some some perspective from the Muslim community. Yes. If yeah. I may. <clears throat> I think the, the one of the single biggest um, impact, I think, is how religion is not seen as just... Um, belonging to Islam, for example, belonging to you, but it's something that you need to also share with people around around you. For mm. example, one, one, one very um, obvious example is how in a lot of countries, you, start, you can also um, attest to it that mosques are somehow almost sacred, whereby it's not an open space, you know. Mm. Um, you can just visit our neighboring countries mm. where... The mosques are only open for religious activities, uh, for your prayers and stuff like that. But but I think following nine eleven, in Singapore, I think it's we, we did that before, but it, it became more prevalent where we opened the the doors of our mosques to other communities for them to understand Islam as um, the true faith um, of peace. You know, mm. so there were a lot because there were a lot of misunderstanding that happened, a lot of narratives that political that were fitting certain agendas but but we are trying to but 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 what 9-11 did was we opened our doors you know for mosques for religious institutions um for other communities to visit not just in a superficial level but also deeper dialogue deeper engagement yeah. most of these are done behind closed doors as well but what's important is that there is real genuine interaction engagement which was very important, set the stage for what we have today, I think. Um, although we do have our issues with um, misunderstandings or discrimination still exists, but by and large, I think that that impetus of us opening up our mosques, religious institutions to others, I think that create a, a lot of goodwill among the real different communities in Singapore. So to me, I think that is the, one of the main um, positives that came out from a very very right. negative event, lah. Mm. You know, so so that is something that um, uh, that, that that I think is very powerful that came out from from nine eleven for us. And uh, Zakir, what about you? I mean, so I think if I can add on to yeah. what Hadi said, um, and I think we, you know, as a journalist, um, yes. young journalist reporting social community issues, then we covered many of these uh, activities. And what was striking, I remember, was, um, you know, with IRCs, with mosques opening up, uh, you saw IRCCs organize almost regular weekend visits, you know, where leaders from, you know, the church, the Buddhist yes, temple, yeah. um, the Hindu temple, and so on, would actually gather and visit a mosque. Um, but it was not just that. Uh, most leaders would also gather with these other religious leaders and go and visit their places of worship. And everyone ended up finding out more about one another's religions. And um, while respecting the differences, they, they got to know a bit more. And, and it was more the meeting and getting to know one another better and breaking down stereotypes. And I thought that played a helpful role. I think uh, Moes, for instance, uh, mm. started up the Harmony Centre yeah. at the mosque in Bishan yeah. as, as one example. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's true. I mean, I used to see the mini tours being organized in different uh, yeah. churches to the mosque. Then the community, pe- community people from those churches might go and have a visit at the mosque. Things I, I might have noticed is also the websites. You know, we mm. were getting into the internet age. You know, mm. it was not just in Arabic or, or uh, Malay or what. There were English translations, proper, good translations so there's a proper understanding i think all that is evolved that's uh, that's a good sign as well um even in the bookshops religious bookshops you can see uh guidebooks to different faiths Mm -hmm. done pretty well and uh, i assume it's legit (laughs) yeah Yeah, so i think that's good it it started that conversation going even though it was uncomfortable in the early years yeah i mean the ars is one very good example that came up from 9-11 um you know, it's, it's, it's extremely important for us to be able to... Because religion, we always see it as our private space, mm. you know. So, mm. you don't catch on to my private space or whatever, right? But I think, you know, like Dr. Muhammad, uh, Dr. Muhammad said, it's very important. So, ARS help us to, you know, put a system in place where mm. we thought that there could never be a system to, to kind of regulate these classes that, you know, most of which are very good, uh, legit, you know. Yes. We need a system of monitoring and, you know, which could also give the community confidence as well. So I think that was another uh, brilliant thing that came out from this episode. I I, I think uh, uh, we are very fortunate here because we have leaders who are able, who were able back then to to think strategically how to deal with with this threat, you know. Mm. I can still remember, you know, one of the things that... uh, that the government initiated right after the first or the second wave of arrest of the JID detainees is that the government gathered about 200 community leaders, uh, mm-hmm. religious leaders. And I can still remember uh, it's at uh, Kalang Indoor Stadium, mm-hmm. right? And one message, you know, conveyed uh, to the community by our then PM Go Chok Tong was that he made it clear from the start that this JI problem, JI episode, is has nothing to do with Islam and has nothing to do with the Muslims. It is a problem of national security mm. and it's affected all of us. So right from the start, eh, then PM Go Choktun has made it clear that this is nothing to do with Islam and any religion. So they 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 were very careful about you know you know how the issue of religion and race back then. I mean, could be affected, uh, could be put in the negative light uh, uh, with this GI episode. And then comes, you know, the formation of IRCCs and then, you know, the Armony Center. Mm. Even before that, the Armony Circle was established first oh, alongside yes. the IRCCs. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and from the Islamic community side, not only that we have instituted this, the Asatiza Recognition Scheme, but also in that decade, Islamic Council has also kind of uh, uh, brought this idea of the Singapore Muslim identity, the SMI, mm. right? Because the problem with these detainees, mm. these red, uh, radicals, is they are they were not they they did not know how to live as a good Muslim in Singapore. Really, that's the problem. Yes, I mean they thought that they cannot be a, a a good Muslim in in the Singapore context. In a secular society. In a secular society. Right. Yeah, because we developed this SMI. I mean, for example, I mean we 
made it clear that there is no problem for Muslims to live in these three conditions. Number one, Muslims in Singapore, we live as a minority community. Second, we live in a secular government. And third, we live in a pluralistic society. And Islam mm. has no problem for Muslims to live in such situations. I think mm. the backdrop to that is also because of increased religiosity during that time. Yeah. And then so there were some... Yeah. And, uh, confusion or maybe you know uncertainty mm. lack of confidence so yeah. while Dr. Muhammad talk about how the government leaders the role that they play yes we acknowledge that but I think also we should also give credit to the religious and community leaders back then mm. I think Singapore was one of the very first country that whereby the religious leaders came out to openly um, reject whatever that was being done by these radicals and we were one of the very first that came out very openly to, to to do that. And it's not easy, I think, at that time for religious leaders to do that because things were uncertain. But I think they, we had the moral courage. I mean, they had the moral courage to come out and say and put their, you know, reputations or whatever mm. on the line. And I think that helped a lot in, in giving the community confidence because it was so easy to just do the opposite, right? When something happens like this yes. and you are under the spotlight, you're under attack to, to a certain extent, you know, to be more less yeah. open but religious leaders said no let's be more open and show them the true uh, how what the true Islam is and so that kind of leadership give the community a lot of confidence I think so that that's a good segue as we move on into the next decade right which is 2010 to 2020 and your your uh, Hadi your dad was in Berita Harian at the time also I remember and uh, did you guys have conversations about how even the media coverage was changing for you guys at Berita Harian to be the voice of the community. You have to change that approach also. Was there a transition? Did you see? Did you discuss with him? I think, I can't remember whether we discussed it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that, I think the media reflects sentiments on the ground. Yeah. I mean, so, so I think there was a, a desire for the community to show that we are moderate, we are progressive, we are confident living in a secular country, mm. that Islam have, like Dr. Muhammad said, Islam has no problems with being a good Muslim and a good citizen. So I think that reflected in, in our coverage a lot also. <clears throat> um, I mean, right after 11, I wasn't a journalist yet back then, but mm -hmm. I saw a lot of coverage. I read a lot of media reports, a lot of commentaries. Mm -hmm. We tried very hard to portray this lah, that hmm. you know this side of Islam is not something that we that we accept you know this is and the context I mean Dr. Muhammad uh, when he's talked about people Muslims do not know how to live in a mod, uh, in a secular country it's because of the context you know yeah like when you when you read um, uh, uh, religious texts whatever that guides you you also, Islam teaches you also, I, I mean, I'm not an Ustaz, but you know, mm. but Islam also teaches you to put things into context, right, Ustaz? Right? Right. You yeah. need to know the context where you're living in. And that's very important to Islam. You know, Islam teaches you that your um, you have to love your country. Loving your country is actually the first, uh, is the very important uh, tenet of Islam. So, um, so that was something that the, the, the coverage also tried to... Right. To portray to, to reflect, you know, yeah. yeah, like you have to be okay. you, you have to be able to live in harmony in a multiracial country, and we are contributing a uh, member of the country, lah, citizen. Yeah, Zakir, what about you? I mean, twenty ten. 
to about 2020, you're already moving up into the editing roles and all that. Can you see that transition as well in the English media scene? I think yeah. so. Yeah, and I think we were especially mindful that, you know, our, our readers are multiracial and multireligious. And sometimes um, when we, you know, take content from uh, especially The Wires or report on terror attacks abroad, um, the way they refer to some of the, you know, incidents or some of the tension, describe some of the tensions between communities there um, is a bit worrying and concerning. So I yeah. think the way we report that here has to be calibrated and adjusted to a society. Um, and and sometimes, you know, some there's some media reports that tend to highlight uh, sensational stuff. Um, you know, and and try and link, yeah. especially when you report on a terror attack in into the UK or, yeah. or France. But often the focus would be on the mosques they went to, and you know. Yeah. But actually, these are fringe, you know, almost <laughs> closed cells on their own. But when you report yeah. them here, uh, our readers might start worrying and say, "Hey, you know, our mosque here. Maybe are they doing this in the basement? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not love, But yeah, <laughs> even with the words also that come in from the Western Wire stories. I mean. You know, sometimes they just plainly call them Islamic attacker. Yes. So the the question is, the tricky we, part for us in the Straits Times is how do you yeah. rephrase that, right? Yeah. yeah. So we were quite mindful and I think we've avoided, for, for a long time, our sub-editors would uh, take out the word jihadist and use the word militant because, um, and we got feedback from readers as well who felt this, um, you know, portray, you know, mm distorts the concept of jihad, which actually sure. means a struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's become a bit more accepted. Um, or even the use of the word uh, hardline, fundamentalist, we kind of tone that mm. down. Um, and I think we, it's useful to always go back to our principle, which we have, I think, at the Streets yeah. Times when we first joined, is that when reporting on any incident, any court case, uh, you don't mention the race of the parties unless it's relevant Mm -hmm. of course you may tell by the name and I think we applied that principle Mm. in reporting on terrorism and reporting on radicalism yeah if the nationality was relevant, okay, we will bring it. But um, generally, we still avoid mentioning the religion of the person unless it was pertinent. Actually, that decade, right, 2010 to 2020, is really, for mm. me, I felt it was a decade of the explosion of social media. Mm. Yeah. Um, how do you think that really changed the scene, Dr. Mohammed? I mean, in terms of the evolution of all these sure. ideologies, even the risks and the challenges as well. Yeah. We... Developments in the Middle East, it started in 2010 with the Arab Spring, right? Yes. And then right after that, in 2011, uh, the Syrian conflict erupted. And that year, uh, Singaporeans, uh, I mean, Singapore authorities detected that there's young Singaporeans who were attracted to the conflict in Syria because they were led to believe that the conflict in Syria was a jihad obligation that requires their participation. Hmm. And then what we witnessed in 2014, ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria or Islamic State, have kind of so-called established their own physical caliphate. Yes. And, and, and in subsequent years, we, we saw the, uh, uh, you know, the territories captured by ISIS. Huh? But my assessment of, of that decade with regards to ISIS is uh, the proliferation of extremist thoughts uh, by ISIS using the social media platforms. Okay, you know, I would argue like this, uh, that 
you know, the the strength of ISIS does not lie in their military capabilities or does not lie in the territories that they have captured. But the strength of ISIS really lies on the use of social media hmm. to, to, to propagate their, their ideology. And, and because of... Uh, uh, because of the widespread of ISIS narratives and ideology hmm. through social media, eh, they have managed to indoctrinate uh, very young minds from across the globe. So you counsel Muslim extremists and all that as part of your work with RRG, right? Why do you think is that? Is it because they know what you know, which is a lot of these people, not just in Singapore, and across the world in the region, they lack a sense of belonging like yeah. you mentioned earlier with the Singapore Muslim identity, yes, right? Yes. They lack a sense of belonging. They feel they need to belong to something and therefore they get drawn to this Correct. Yeah. caliphate ideas or is that you think the bottom line? Yes, yes. I mean, if you look at the profile of uh, the JI detainees, the self-radicalized individuals and those influenced with ISIS narrative, all of them have this uh, uh, common or similar sentiments uh, with regards to uh, how they position themselves, their identity in Singapore, right? Mm. So, and because of, because of this, we have tailored our counselling methodologies. Right. So we need, to, we need to do two things. Number one is we really need to identify the doctrines and ideas that they misuse, misunderstood, or jihad, or, or for example, the concept of sharia and dawla islami and things like that. That is one. Uh, but, you know, when we deal with all these individuals, it's not about, uh, I mean, many a times it's not about their religious thinking. Hmm. It's about their own sentiments and feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because these are individuals who are not happy with the Singapore government, not happy with the US foreign policy, they're not happy with the Tudong issue, they're not happy with Moes, right? So there are mm. many things that they are not happy with. So how can we deal as counsellors mm. with their so many unhappiness? And, and the tricky part is that you can't cut people off from social media, right? They're still going to access it somehow, right? Yeah. I think this is, I would say, uh, uh, the enduring threat of online radicalization. Mm. If you were to ask me, I still do not have uh, the the real remedy for online radicalization. Yeah, because I mean, a couple of milestones happened in that decade. Like in 2015, 19-year-old yeah. teenager becomes the first known youth to harbor the intention to carry out violent attacks in Singapore. Yeah. And the de demographics are changing, you know. That's right. We would get a woman uh, later on. Yeah. And then we would get a, a Protestant Christian who was uh, self-radicalized in a way, right? And uh, he was influenced by far-right extremist ideology. So it's changing. Yeah. It doesn't really just belong to one religion or any other. It could be anything. But again, the bottom line is same. Uh, the feeling of having some power disrupting the social order maybe perhaps the ideology of hatred yeah. i think yes yeah and and tied into your lack of self, uh, self belonging lack of yeah self esteem lack of yeah. self belonging yes zakir what about you i mean how what do you make of that this social media explosion in that decade and what are the uh, yeah so i think it's not just uh, yes radicalization is one thing but even the rise in the number of complaints and and you know cases that are heard where um, 
in the courts, you know, uh, people threaten or incite violence and hatred on other lines on social media. Yeah. Uh, you, you even see uh, racist sentiments and attacks on online. Um, and I feel the same with uh, uh, some of these radicalized young individuals. You you look for something, you find stumble on something, mm. and you go down what experts call this rabbit hole. Right? You yeah. you um, keep digging, and before you know it, your worldviews change, and and <laughs> and you you, you know, yeah. the speed at which people are radicalized has become a lot faster. Yeah. Uh, so we've been speaking to counselors and experts as well, and I think the. The need for online engagement, whether by on the part of parents or teachers, is also key, I guess. Mm. Hadi, what about you? I mean, what was the perspective of Barita Harian, you know, when reporting on all these very quick evolutionary changes, you know? I think, I mean, we, we social media is something that you can't control, but mm. I think there's there are mitigating things that you can do, for example, and we have done it, and BH has reported widely on it. For example, the um, Satiza Youth Network mm-hmm. uh, initiative by Mu'is. So, they, they, uh, they recognize... Maybe clarify for the sake of our listeners, Asatiza. Asatiza are religious teachers. So, so, so Mu'is uh, recognize um, this radicalization online, mainly radicalizing young people who are looking for answers, you know, they have an M, they have emptiness, some parts of their soul or mind, they're looking for some kind of um, religious um, guidance. And mm. so they, they, they created this group of young asatizas, young religious teachers who are already quite active online, teach them, give them the tools, the, the skills of engaging people online through social media. Uh, and it's been very effective. We have what happened now is we have a whole group of young religious teachers who are very, who can be considered influencers on social media. Right. You know, okay. Uh, many uh, think they have been even some of them have been um, uh, uh, highlighted in national day rallies of of years gone by, where they have done good work. Sometimes at the detriment also because the things that they do, some you know, there will always be people who say, ah, this one. So they call them Ustaz government. Uh. Yeah. So, oh, yes. yes, Ustaz <laughs> yeah. government means you, you know, you propagate whatever the agenda is. But I think the important thing that they do is to counter things that are not right, you know. It doesn't have to be radical um, ideologies. It could be things that could lead to being radical or being extreme. So I think that that was, that is something that BH, although... Not entirely. Um, it's also there's something that we support. So we we highlight this asatiza. We bring them on to our podcast, um, to 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 get them to get more followers and followings. Like, and so you know, so so yeah. these are the things that the positive de- development as well on social media to counter some of these uh, re- uh ideologies that is going on on social media. Yeah. So in a way, like um, countering, get that, counter it get that community online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like a formalized way that it was back in 2002 and mm-hmm. 2003. Very interesting. Do you find that the Malay community is uh, more willing to look at such articles, listen to, consume, read such articles, opinions, and even as you said, you brought them onto the podcast, which mm-hmm. is a new platform for you guys. Um, how, what is the reaction there by the Malay community? I think BH have always tried to not to be, you know, to 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 a, a very um, careful balance between mm. 
uh, in when we report on religion or we have religious content you know because we are still a secular uh, a Malay language newspaper yes we're an Islamic newspaper right but what we have done is I mean what 9-11 has also done is to actually have this new consciousness about religion right beyond the theologies beyond the hukum eh, in what Malay says uh, Islam says to more um, values you know embracing values that are actually values that uh, espoused by our prophets you know um, values of inclusivity um, compassion mm-hmm. um, kindness all these things are actually Um, uh, universal values. So these are the things that we bring into our podcast, talking about. Um, um. So so we bring um the, this asatiza and talk about the good things that the committee has done, you know, and the committee has to take a lot of credit actually. I think the the, the Muslim community in Singapore must understand that they have done quite a bit to. Like I said, it's so easy to as a minority yeah. being in the spotlight. Yes. To go the other way, you know. But we actually come out and it takes a lot of confidence to come out and say that, hey, we want to be, we are part of this uh, community, this society, you know. And and so that's how our coverage has, has shaped. You know, we, we we put out a lot of this religious content in terms of um, reporting it as values. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's, that's how we've approached it through our different mediums or podcasts or Facebook live as well. Yeah, I think it's good for our listeners to also find out about this uh, way of coverage from Berita Harian as well in this mm. podcast. Yeah, uh, good stuff, gentlemen. And let's move on to the, well, it's only at the start of the next decade, but let's just call it the COVID era, uh, 2020 onwards. And uh, obviously, we all know this now, recent pullout of the Americans from Afghanistan just before the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So, Dr. Mohamed, in this COVID world, right, um, people are staying at home, uh, remote. You recently told the Straits Times uh, in a report that you think the risks are going to be greater. Why? Okay. You know, the online radicalization, as I've mentioned earlier, is something that uh, we term it as the enduring threat, uh, something that we have to deal for many years to come, right? Whether it's COVID period or not COVID period. Uh, but there is an uh, increase, uh, you know, use of the uh, internet and social media by the youngsters especially mm. during the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic era. Uh, it's because many of these young people, they are spending a lot of time online. Mm. And This is the time when extremist groups such as ISIS and the like will take the opportunity to kind of boost their presence online in terms of propagating more more materials uh, and narratives. So our young people are very, pretty much exposed uh, to so many things yeah. on the internet, right? So and and ISIS also has been, you know, using this opportunity. So I think that um, although the, in Singapore we have not seen this, but, you know, recent cases have shown that uh, there is an increase or surge in the cases of online radicalization. Yeah. Mm. I think moving forward... Uh, How do you counter that then? I think engagement. Yeah? Yeah, engagement and education. It can't just come from the top. 
Definitely. Yeah, mm. I think the community themselves I mean, need to take the lead, mm. right? The profile of those who have been arrested and radicalized for the past 10 years, they are at the age, I think, less than 30 years. They're very right. young people, right? Yeah. And all these young people, they spend a lot of them online mm. and they have less engagement uh, with us. So I think more engagement needs to be done with them and discuss openly issues, even issues of extremism and violence. Even the families? Do you think families here, I mean, not just Malay families, but it could be any other faith, even the Protestant Christian boy also, his family could have been, could their family have done more? I think families play an important role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see the telltale yeah. signs, I'm sure, right? Yeah. yeah. The family institution, they are the... Uh, they are the, I would say, the frontliners, you know, yeah. because they are the first, I mean, they could be the first to detect mm -hmm. these online activities of their loved ones at home, right? And uh, they have a role to play to ensure that uh, the, 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 their children will not be on the verge of radicalization through their online activities. Mm. I mean, what do you all think? Do you think harmony is possible? I, I, the topic of this podcast is actually about the impact on harmony since 9-11. Do you think in this COVID era going forward, is harmony possible? Even global harmony? You look, it's so disparate mm. these days. Yeah, Zakir? I think, I think it is possible, but <laughs> it's not going to be an easy journey. Yeah. I think just even if you look at uh, COVID-19's impact elsewhere, you know, cases of domestic violence in Singapore have gone up, right? Mm. Uh, cases of stress have gone up. Uh, and and I think, you know, these, these tensions will rise because of all the restrictions, but also a loss in income and so on. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, frankly, if, if uh, we see an uptick in cases of radicalization as well. Um, I think what, what is often unreported is, is, you know, the arrests, those who go far, those who are almost on the brink of committing something. Uh, but I think behind the scenes, there are also an, quite a number of cases of radicalization, right, who might be referred to RRG, might be referred to, to the oh, authorities. Oh, the early detection phase. Early yeah. detection yeah. phase. Right. Yes. And, and I guess, you know, um, in a way, that, that's a positive development, but um, it is worrying if such cases uh, there are rising. There is a rise there, you see? Dr. Mohamed? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I don't have the numbers, <laughs> la, but yeah. it, this is of great concern. Uh, right. Yeah, there mean, is a general rise yes. in the graph. Uh. Correct. Yeah. Right. And uh, Hadi, what about you? I mean, so, from your good, perspective. But it's good yeah. that they are detected early. Yes, I think. Yeah. I mean, that, it's a positive. Yeah. You know, before they start yeah. buying things uh, online and uh, trying, you know, because yeah. it was so close yes. to being yep. for, for, the, for, the, for, for the attack to be carried out. Yeah. And imagine if that happens, like, yeah. Imagine if something happened in the mosque or something happened in the church that yeah. you, you, you can't imagine lah, the, yeah. the impact that it has. And that would really be a test of all this uh, initiative that we have done over the years when something truly, you know, negative or touch wood happens, you know. So on your question of harmony being, I mean, we always, we always have that ideal that we want to have this harmonious relationship but as, as Zakir said I think it's a it's a gonna be a very very bumpy road ahead yeah. just like our COVID restrictions <laughs> <laughs> sometimes up sometimes down you know <laughs> okay so 
last last point i mean uh, we've had a good conversation i felt and uh, we're talking about the impending introduction of a new law to keep racial peace in singapore i mean it's been outspoken frankly in singapore mm-hmm. uh, people have not been afraid to speak about it yeah. but i think we're arriving at this stage in our singapore's nationhood right i mean i feel that people are ready to have a proper conversation i mm. think there's going to be a decent level of conversation um yeah regardless of race language or religion do you think singaporeans are ready to talk about harmony i think two things here uh first is we need to kind of categorize singaporeans i mean there there are two two big groups one the the younger generation and of course the elder generation uh. for the younger generation i think they are ready Mm. because of the exposure and the mm. learning process that they have gone through right yeah their generation you see but for the elder generation the good thing about this elder generation is that they have lived during that period where race and religion was not an issue back then mm. <laughs> yeah you know you know in the kampung you know how yeah. how how the chinese the malays the indians they are just part of one big families yeah yeah but of course this generation they are I mean I mean because of their age and even their exposure I mean they are not I don't think they are ready to have this conversation mm. yeah I mean as compared to the younger generation so there are pros and cons uh, between these two generation but what is uh, im- uh, important to me is also that we need to take a step back by defining harmony in the Singapore context uh, what do we actually mean by harmony mm. do do we do we refer harmony as harmonious living or is it harmony means uh, the the existence of war and violence huh? what do we actually mean is it to me the the, the 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 issues of racism religion and race is about celebrating diversity is the ability is the ability for each and every human being to view each other as human being I think that has not been achieved. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean we have so many initiative in the past, IRCC and the like, right? We visit the mosque, visit the church, right? But I think there still lack this uh, ability to view each other as human beings mm. and to really celebrate the differences in diversity. So this is I think the way forward for, you know, our young generation as I've mentioned earlier to really discuss this very deeply. Zakir what about you how do you what's your take on that your pulse I feel I feel I agree with Ustaz Muhammad actually that you know um there's there's this generational divide yeah. um but I think there's also been an openness and I think um might we may need to calibrate it and proceed at different paces mm-hmm. so for the older generation maybe you mm-hmm. know if you're less willing yeah but I think for the younger generation you do need a platform and you do need avenues for them to um talk about this uh, mm. this diversity and talk about also their feelings and differences you know whether it's on issues like privilege or discrimination and racism yeah um and i think but i think one 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 way is many of these continue to take place in closed door formats and sometimes maybe that's the best platform rather than have a live audience live you know session and yeah. um where things could get heated and i think that the problem with social media is things tend to get blown out of yes. proportion and amplified hadi what about you i mean what's your feel of the malay community's take to this i mean this changing times now 
I think I have high hopes lah for the younger generation. We've been engaging them a lot, yeah. you know, over the past couple of months on race issues. We had a forum, Majula Forum for National Day, where we, where we had many many youths give their views as well. Okay. And I think they are ready to. I think they're crying out to talk about mm. issues with regards to race, and I I can sense a, a genuine um, interest, a genuine. Uh, desire to have an open conversation and to have a bet and a, a bet harmonious relations, lah. You know, to address stereotypes and stuff like that. So I'm positive that mm. um, it can be achieved. And we've seen how in during COVID, people were helping each other regardless of race. So yeah. I think I'm I'm positive in that aspect. Yeah, I think like Dr. Mohammed, I mean, maybe the older generation, you know, there's still that hesitance, you know. I'll yeah. leave you to your own devices. Mm. <laughs> Don't disturb me. I mean, we'll agree to disagree, something like that. That might hold people back. Uh. Mm. Yeah. But I think it's great and something positive to look forward. But as you guys said, it's uh, not going to be an easy road. I want to thank you all for summing up the impact of the changes after 9-11. Um, Some obviously have been long-lasting on the negative side, but we've seen a lot of positives, right? So thank you very much. And I think that nicely wraps up this conversation and uh, have to thank you for your time in our podcast show. Thank you, Dr. Muhammad. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zakir. And thank you, Hadi, for hosting us in this very cozy Barita Haryan studio. So we'll sign out from there and uh, you've been listening to a special podcast episode co-produced by The Straits Times and Berita Haryan. We've covered two decades, the impact of 9-11 attacks in the US on Harmony in Singapore and Southeast Asia and we started looking beyond 2021 too. So all in all, we hope you enjoyed listening to the discussion. Do share this podcast with your friends and wider community here in Singapore and even globally. And we will have links to Barito Haryan's podcast as well in our text description. Don't forget to subscribe to the Straits Times podcast channel on your favorite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can also find Barita Haryan's podcast on the same platforms. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. Stay safe. That was an SPH podcast by the Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.